0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me speaking to you from Fox Media headquarters in New York City. Delighted that I have Gabriel Sherman on the show. Wanted him for a long time. Finally got him here because he's got a TV show of all things about Roger Ailes. Welcome, Gabe. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Your brief bio... New York Magazine writer for a long time, now at Vanity Fair, wrote a book about Roger Ailes, and now there is a TV miniseries about Roger Ailes. Congrats. Thank you. Thank you. Did you imagine there was going to be a Roger Ailes miniseries on television?
2: The short answer is no. You know, you never think as a a reporter when you set out to cover a story that it's going to grow to the level where, you know, Hollywood would want to get involved. So, um, you know, it's surreal when I was on set during production to see you know, Russell Crowe, who's, you know, an actor, obviously, I've watched my entire adult life, to see him in, inhabiting this role. He really became Roger Ailes and gave me nightmares at certain points because I felt like Roger was back from the dead. Um, He's very intimidating. I mean, in, in, in,
1: in but Ailes was in real life and, no, and, 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 and Crowe.
2: Yeah, and that's why I feel like it is a such a perfect marriage of, of actor and subject. Uh, they both are larger-than-life people who command a room.
1: And there, there's also a, a Gabriel Sherman character in the show?
2: Yeah, it's a very small one. Um, so I, uh, but I do make an appearance, not me personally, but a, a great actor named Fran Kranz, uh, who appears as the journalist uh, in the uh, fifth episode. And it's a fascinating look because, you know, a lot of movies or TV series or movies, they look at journalists as sort of the hero character. And the only uh, parts that my character appears in is the antagonist. We only see the journalist from either Ailes' or Brian Lewis, Ailes' PR chief's perspective. So in many ways, it's kind of the
1: other side of of how people who experience journalism see it. How How did you feel about seeing yourself play? Did you feel the actor was attractive enough, confident enough? Yes, you know, I uh,
2: I wanted Army Hammer to play me, but that was I was a running joke in the writers' room. No. Um I feel like he passed the test because um my we showed uh, just a still from uh from the set one day and my uh toddler looked at the the still and said Dada. So, obviously she thought
1: it was close enough. So, uh, we have a very smart audience here. Um if for some reason they don't know who Roger Ailes is, I can't imagine listening to the show. But, just for background, Roger Ailes was among other things the man who created Fox News. Yeah, you know, he uh, is a fascinating character. His
2: life really traces the entire uh, modern history of how television has transformed American politics. And he is, I argue, in the book, and I think the series makes the compelling case, that he is you know, the most consequential media figure of his generation that really created uh, the political culture that allowed someone like Donald Trump to get elected president. I mean, if you look at Ailes's biography, at 26, he was the executive producer of the Mike Douglas Show, um, the number one rated variety program in the 1960s. He talked his way into a job as Richard Nixon's media yeah. advisor, helped him win the 68 presidential that election. that Joe McGinnis book. Yeah, it's amazing, uh, amazing portrait Is of the a selling young- Selling of the President? Selling they? of yeah. the President. Go and read then- that. You know, he went on in the 70s. He had this kind of this peripatetic career as a Broadway producer and as a media consultant. And he finally, you know, found his true calling, which was always what he was best at um, in politics. And in the 80s, he became the preeminent uh, Republican strategist of his generation, helped Reagan get reelected in 84 and ran George Bush's media strategy in 88 um, so if you you know look at you know Ailes's career, it really you know parallels the rise of the modern Republican Party and its shift towards nativism and populism. Yeah, and he's
1: not a zealot character; where he just happens to show up like he's steering it. Yes, exactly. Um, and in another world, the fact that Roger Ailes was pushed out of Fox uh, after a sexual harassment scandal and then died a year later would be sort of the most consequential media news, really, in a decade but because it's happening in the Trump era, right? And the, he, he got pushed out right before the election. We know he got pushed out. And I was covering this
2: in Cleveland during the 2016 Republican convention. I mean, it's, right. so, so if you pitch this as a show, it'd be too on the nose. He was fired from Fox on Thursday, a few
1: hours before Donald Trump gave his acceptance speech. So for someone like me, it's a huge deal. And it, it feels like in some ways it really didn't get nearly enough attention. Um, and we, I want to talk to you about the, the Trump era yeah. as well. But when when did you sink your teeth into Roger Ailes and Fox? This is a long-term yeah. project Yeah, I mean, for it's you. basically been 10 years of, a, of I've been covering this story. I um, was
2: assigned uh, a cover story for New York Magazine in 2009 and really looking at the um, the rise of cable news and, you know, the way in which partisan cable news was fanning uh, our politics uh, in the era of, uh, of Obama's first term. And I did a couple of pieces and I felt that there was just so much I wanted to dig into. And uh, so I pitched it as a book uh, book project. And my initial idea for a book was to do a, a history of Fox News as an institution from 96 to the present day, which would then would have probably been Obama's um, reelection campaign. And early into the reporting, when I would, you know, get sources in and out of, out of Fox to talk to me, their common line I would hear would be something like, well, if you, got to under, if you want to understand Fox, you have to understand Roger. And I heard that enough. More, more than Rupert Murdoch. More than the Rupert guy Murdoch, you know, yeah. Most often associated exactly. with it. Exactly. And so the reporting really guided me to looking at Ailes as a figure, as a person. And that's why the book ultimately became a biography of Ailes. Um, because, you know, so much of the network, from the paranoid office culture to the look of the the shows, the candy colored sets, the bright lights, the you know the short dresses, everything kind of came out of his head. And so you had I wanted to see what experiences in his life shaped that worldview. And so you ultimately spent six years on on the book. Well, I spent about three and a half years on the book, but then it came out in early 2014. And then the following summer, um, there was a major power shift in the Murdoch empire, which you've covered as well, which uh, with the elevation of James Murdoch to be CEO of 21st Century Fox, the return of Lachlan Murdoch, Ailes' longtime nemesis to America. So I jumped on that story as well. And that basically just fed right into the following summer when Gretchen Carlson filed her you know, landmark lawsuit on July 6th of 2016, accusing Ailes of sexual harassment. And that just opened the floodgates to all the other women coming forward. So it's basically a story I never stopped covering after my book was published.
1: So the the series, I've, I've watched two episodes of it, gets the sexual harassment stuff right up front and center at the beginning. Your book didn't touch it. I definitely
2: explored it. I had um, three women on the record talking about, you know, harassment uh, that Ailes did at earlier in his career, I should point out. And I knew about sort of the whispers and, you know, the the contours of what Ailes was doing at Fox, but none of the women at Fox would go, even on background, they were just so terrified, understandably so, because of the PR machine, the Brian Lewis, Irina Briganti PR machine that Ailes had set up to silence any internal dissent. And so, you know, I, I hinted at it in the New York Times when they wrote a story about the news in my book, you know, included that in their write-up. Uh-huh. And I thought more women were going to come forward. You know, I said to my wife at the time, like, there's so many more out there. I wonder if the floodgates will open. So you knew there was more there. Yeah. And and so I think it really took, you know, the culture was changing. You know, this was 2014, 2015 the Bill Cosby story was starting to get more traction, and then you had, obviously, the rise of Trump, and he was credibly accused by multiple women of harassment. So, you know, my reporting sort of fed into the way the culture was almost ready for the Me Too era, and Ailes was the first, you know, major public media figure to be felled by the
1: Me Too era. I, I want to just provide a little more context about Ailes for, and, and what he did in politics and TV, and, you know, you... Just explained that he was tightly connected to Republicans from Nixon on up. But as you point out in the book, and the movie begins, the miniseries begins, He's le- at the time he starts Fox News, he had just left uh, NBC, yeah. built CNBC. Um, so it wasn't like he did exclusively political reporting his no. entire life. He's a guy who was really good at making TV. And then the question I had about him for a long time and sort of still do is how much of the ideology was, was sort of baked into him versus transactional. Like Robert Murdoch— has a conservative political point of view, but he's very transactional mm-hmm. and he'll do business with Hillary Clinton or the Chinese or whoever gets him to the next mm-hmm. thing. And then he doesn't have a, a long memory. It strikes me that Ailes is different. Yeah. And um, so I'll
2: just take that in two parts. Yeah. The series opens as Ailes is is basically being forced out of NBC by Jack Welch, who was uh, CEO of the parent company, GE at the time. And we hint at an HR investigation. And in my book, I go much deeper on that. Um, I got a cache of internal NBC documents that showed how NBC commissioned Proskauer Rose to do an investigation of allegations that Ailes was anti-Semitic at work. He was abusive, threatening people, and so it was kind of a, a, a echo or a foreshadow of how you know, Murdoch would have to hire lawyers to do an investigation. So anyways, we meet Ailes, he's forced out and he's, you know, has to rebuild his career and he goes into to work for Murdoch. And what we show through the series at certain moments is there's a real tension between Ailes and Murdoch because as as you said, Murdoch has a, has a conservative worldview, but he's fundamentally about profits. And Ailes, and I, I believe this to my core based on my years of reporting, is a true believer. There was always been, you know, this wink and a nod. Oh, is he just cynical? Is he doing this for ratings? Well, yeah, he's doing it for ratings, but he's also doing it because this is what he believes. And, you know, we show the degree of paranoia that had built up in Ailes over time about the rise of a figure like Obama who seemed to be at the the sort of signaling a shift in American politics to the left. Ailes, you know, built a multi-room security bunker under a mountain in his at his upstate compound because he was terrified of terrorism and the Chinese. And these kind of paranoid fantasies that Ailes got consumed with is what he showed on screen at fox there was not you know this was it happened to get amazing ratings but this wasn't like he was doing it simply because the programming strategy was working
1: but he was also then very good at tv what did he get about tv Mm -hmm. that that his competitors didn't yeah well he um and i recommend
2: to to your listeners because i read it multiple times for my book and also for the show ailes's book uh you are the message uh which he published right before the 92 presidential election is his whole theory on communication. And at Fox News, it kind of became almost like a cult manual, like Dianetics for Scientology. But what it says in the book and what he does at Fox is what TV is all about is authenticity and whether you can connect as a person through the screen to the viewer at home. And now that sounds like common sense. But one of Ailes' strategies, and we we show this in the series, is the way he evaluates talent before he hires them as he watches their demo tapes on mute, and, you know, you think that would be counterintuitive. Well, you want to hear what they're saying. And Ailes believes the opposite. He says that people have to speak through the screen and give you a reason to want to listen. And so I think that is a sort of an example of how, you know, he had an innate understanding of how TV uh, it was different and how the camera, if you were not yourself, the camera was so um, powerful that it would pick up on that. The audience would change the channel.
1: And, and I, I remember doing a, a story about Fox for Forbes. It was early on and sort of Hannity, not Hannity, uh, Bill O'Reilly was like coming up, but he wasn't a huge, huge star yet. Uh, and I had a brief interview with Ailes and at some point I said something effective. the effect of, yeah, I, look, I, was, I was coming from Forbes, so I sort of figured he would, you know friendly voice here and I said, you know, the fair and balanced thing, that's, you know, don't really mean that, right? And he essentially hung up mm-hmm. and I think they had then talked to me again at some point, but clearly he was done with me and in retrospect, I feel really stupid because my my story was focused on sort of like the fact that Fox News was up-tempo mm-hmm. and, and sort of Tradi- different than sort of traditional TV at the time What I, I really did not get the ideological sort of through line that he had there that he yeah was, He really did mean it.
2: Oh, he did mean it And um, but I'm not surprised that he hung up when you brought up the fair and balance because also what was so baked into Fox uh, from the beginning was this subterfuge or this kind of deception with their audience where Ailes was smart enough to know that people didn't want to be told how to feel and we show this in the show so if they were branded as a conservative network, the viewers at home would say, well, I don't want just conservative news. I want to feel like I'm getting both sides of the story. So it was crucial from the very beginning that Fox not be branded as a right wing network. And they were ruthless and relentless, pushing back on reporters who tried to brand them that way. And I think this is gets to the fundamental Problem of Fox in the Trump era and I, I I feel strongly that if Ailes was still alive running Fox He never would have allowed Fox to be so closely aligned with the Trump White House because now you know any shred of credibility they have has been, you know, thrown out the window because they're seen as an arm of state TV. It was important for Ailes, for Fox to truly be seen as fair and balanced, even though behind the scenes he was programming it so that conservatives
1: always won. Yeah. And working with the, the Bush White House, yeah. as you explained, um, I want to ask you about sort of uh, Ailes and Trump and and sort of what that life would have been like. But I want to take a quick break. We're going to hear from someone, maybe a sponsor, maybe someone works at Fox Media. We'll be right back.
0: Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place.
1: Who's a high-tempo guy. Oh, speaking of relentless. um, Before we get to the Trump era, I I do want to talk about what it's like to write about Fox News and Roger Ailes specifically, famously antagonistic towards reporters of all stripes. And then you guys had a real battle. I don't know if battle is the right word. Yeah, I mean, it was, I guess,
2: battles— Maybe not the right word because it was all one way. It was all incoming fire. You, you I were trying to report on. I'm him. just he, doing my job. He and was, He's like scorched earth, hiring private investigators to follow me, and you know, commissioning and using news corp money to to pay I, for. Yeah, I
1: want to. I want to just slow down. Make sure we all get this. It's, okay. it's not just that he didn't cooperate no. and didn't sit for an interview, right? He he was actively trying to intimidate you. Oh yeah, through.
2: Yeah, so you know, very early on, I reached out to Brian Lewis, his PR chief, um, for an interview. I wrote Ailes a letter, um, and it was very clear from the beginning he wasn't going to talk to me. So I then went about what a reporter does, and I talked to everybody around Ailes, and I think the you know the number of people he was hearing from that had been contacted by me, he decided he wanted to basically shut the book down himself, and so. He started—this um, was pretty much after I went to his—I think one of the triggers was I went to his hometown of uh, Warren, Ohio, and interviewed people he grew up with and went to archives there. Um, and Standard, I th- diligent reporting. Of course. And I think, again, this, this idea that a reporter would sort of try to understand him as a person was so threatening that, you know, the first thing— uh, one of the first things he did is he hired his own biographer. So he commissioned uh, a sympathetic biography by the um, journalist Zev Chaffetz, who had written a sympathetic biography of Rush Limbaugh. So he wants to then sort kind of counter-program to my book was mm-hmm. one tactic. Another tactic he did was, yes, just pure intimidation. So he um, hired a PI, and we saw a black car parked outside of our house at one point. Um, he you know used news court money to set up these right-wing websites that were, you know, smearing me in sometimes anti-Semitic ways.
1: And, and they, they weren't, at the time, you knew what these were, but you couldn't say these are directly connected to Yeah, that. so I knew from my sources that Ailes um, was
2: behind them. But then when I, you know, looked for documents, the websites were registered to an anonymous right. L- LLC, um, which I, I subsequently learned was paid for by a company called Garrison Ventures, that Ailes billed to News Corp as a contractor. So he was, he set up a company, he would file an invoice to News Corp, get the money and then use that
1: money to pay for these websites. Running a sort of private black ops operation, funded by Murdoch, Murdoch. theoretically the Murdoch family thinks they were unaware. Yeah, and you know, using shareholder, public shareholder money to do that. And so, you know, and, and I, yeah, this is you've living you've been living in this world for a long time. I think if you if you haven't written about Fox, this is mind boggling. And by the way, even if you've written about Fox, like it's one thing for them to send a nasty note to you might even leak an item to page six yeah, or, or of, you know,
2: call your editor. There are certain things that are in bounds for them. But right. then they go to a whole other level. It's very Nixonian. It's not surprising. Ailes got a start in politics working for Nixon, who you know famously despised the press. Um, so Ailes had his own boiler room, basically his version of the plumbers at Fox, who you know were you know set out to try to destroy my reputation.
1: In some of the press about the the, the series, there's this idea that even making the series was uh, fraught because it's related to Fox. I think that much less so now that he, I mean, he was he was kicked out of the family, right? But at the time when you're writing about Ailes, he's going after you. Do you feel like you've, he had the weight of the Murdoch family with him as well, or was it sort of a solo operation? You know, I think the fact that the Murdochs didn't stop him was
2: at least tacitly they supported it or, you know, they could have stopped it. I Uh mean, you know, it wasn't a secret. There were articles, I think Bill Keller at the New York Times wrote a column about some of the early smears. And uh, so this was not, you know, this was not secret. It was out there. I think for me, the biggest shock was the degree to which Ailes was able to leverage his relationships in the mainstream to really kind of question the credibility of my book. I mean, I, you know, I was surprised when I went on the first book tour, the number of questions I got from, you know, just straight journalists of like, well, you know, he didn't cooperate. You know, this is a very, you know, isn't this a one-sided book or aren't you just a liberal? I mean, basically the entire Fox talking point had been adopted by the mainstream. And I remember I did a interview on um, on uh, CBS this morning with Charlie, Charlie Rose was one of the interviewers. And he said something to the effect of, you know, well, you're writing about his family. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I'm a journalist. I'm writing a biography. I'm going to write about, you know, the relationships that shaped Ailes. And it's just this undercurrent of skepticism that Ailes was able, I think, to inject into the culture that liberals and people like to say Ailes is a boogeyman. But we have to remember that he was, you know, a full member of the Manhattan media power structure. He had a choice table at the Four Seasons and Michael's. Um, and so I was surprised at the degree to which
1: he was able to kind of cloud my book with this air of suspicion and controversy w- while you're working on the book, and again, I, I keep going back to it, you know you had, you had a black car sitting in front of your house. D- obviously meant to intimidate you. I, I th- one of the stories I was reading, you guys actually did, you know, leave the state at one point just for a couple of days. Was there a point where you ever thought, look, I, I'm doing the right thing. i have I have the forces of history uh, on my side. I've got paid a bunch of money to do this book, but, Maybe there's some way I don't do this book. I mean, is it worth my safety, my family's safety?
2: I never thought about um, stopping the book, but it did put a, you know, a big strain on my marriage and my personal life. And my wife and I talked about, like, is this, what are we doing here? And and you mentioned the money. Um, I was so determined for the book to be bulletproof that I spent $100,000, basically a quarter of my entire advance on a team of fact checkers to just vet and tear the book apart to um make sure everything was accurate and so in you know even financially we were totally strapped because i knew ailes was going to come after me with bazookas and so i you know spent all the book money that i had made at that point on the researchers and so there was a question in my mind of like is this worth it but there was something in in me that just knew that i couldn't stop and um, the more he pushed back, the more I just
1: wanted to keep going. And the book comes out, it gets generally respectful reviews. It's not— I it's, mean, Yeah,
2: it gets, you know, it gets respectful, but also, you know, the New York Times, Janet Maslin destroyed it. You know, she shredded it with vicious talking points that, you know, I've heard were influenced by, by Ailes through Peter Boyer, who worked for Fox News and was a very close friend of hers. Um, the public editor, Margaret Sullivan at the time, wrote about this. And, you know, there were other outlets that were, you know, very skeptical of the book. So I feel like the book, you know, the amount of work I put into it, and I didn't have the reception that I had hoped it would.
1: Right, which puts you in league with 99% of people who create books, right? Most books are not read. Yeah. Um, and then did you think, and then you were saying you're still doing reporting on it, but in your mind is sort of that, that project over then? I'm, I did the Roger Ailes book. I'm going to move on to other stuff.
2: Yeah. I mean, I had... um I went back to after my book leave. I returned to New York magazine. I continued covering media and, and politics. And then, you know, when Trump made noises about running for president, um, you know, they assigned me to cover his campaign. So I had, uh, I had in some ways thought the Ailes era uh, was over. But um, but again, as we were talking earlier, I think the return of the younger Murdochs to uh, the empire and the ascension of James um I knew that that story wasn't quite over because of you know their history.
1: Yeah, and they 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 were happy to see him leave eventually. Very much so. Um, and then so um, you, you tell me how the chronology works. He gets he gets pushed out, uh, summer of 2016, um, and then when does this? The idea that this is now a, a TV series show up. Well, it happened during the Republican
2: um, convention, you know, right around the time Ailes was being fired while I was working on the book, um, HBO had optioned it as a movie. They wanted to do, it was right around the time they were doing movies like Game Change, and they wanted to do kind of a ripped from the headlines movie. And uh, that project never happened. It quickly died. Which again, standard. Yep. Hollywood. option. Yep. So then, you know, I, I sort of thought to myself, well, if, you know, that studio was interested, maybe someone else will be in the future. And so when my book came out and I was sort of Feeling like, you know, what am I going to do next? Um, One of the things I did to distract myself was I got up at, you know, five in the morning before work and read every screenplay I could and sort of taught myself the form of screenwriting. And I had started working on a a, a movie, fictionalized movie about a right wing media mogul who descends on a bucolic upstate New York Uh town and takes over the newspaper. And, you know, basically the Roger Ailes story. Yes. You know, one of my favorite parts of the book is, you know, Ailes's adventures with his upstate newspaper in Garrison, New York. Everyone's trying to figure out how to save local news. And and
1: Roger Ailes had a version, which is he was going to buy his own paper, buy
2: his own paper and turn it into a right wing organ. And then the liberals in town set up their own liberal newspaper in a microcosm. This little town of about 5000 people, 10,000 people becomes America where you have competing media clashing. So that was gonna be the basis of kind of a black comedy. My wife and I had written about half the movie and then I got consumed with the Trump campaign, so put it aside. Fast forward, Ailes is fired. I send uh, the script pages to my friend Josh Rafel, who was at the time Jason Blum's PR chief at Blumhouse
1: Productions. And and, and Blumhouse and, Productions at the time is known for making cheap and effective horror, horror movies primarily. And they were getting more into some prestige projects. They made the movie uh, Whiplash. Whiplash
2: and uh, produced the documentary The Jinx uh, about the Durst yep. saga. So in, in any event, fast forward, you know, shortly after reading those pages, I'm on the phone with the two heads of Blumhouse Television who tell me that they're interested, but they want to do it as a multi-part series and not fictional. They want to do it as the real characters. And, you know, that was, um, again, you, you never think as a journalist this will ever happen, but that was the spark that led to the show.
1: And then so they start making the show and then
2: Ailes dies? So we started, um, we, the Showtime came in as the network that would partner with us, and um, we hired a bunch of writers and we started writing the scripts while Ailes was very much alive. And then, um, in May of spring of 2017, he dies and, um, you know, we were moving forward full steam while he was alive. But I think the fact that he was dead gave the project a whole new, um, you know, so you got an ending to the story, ending to the story. And you remove the obstacle of, you know, any legal issues cause you can't libel a dead person. And I think that that final hurdle came down and then it was greenlit. Yeah. And then, and then when does Russell Crowe come on? That's a good question. I'm trying to remember when the casting decision was made. It was it was after basically all the scripts were written. Um and I remember when um in one of our EPs told us about the Crow casting. I was, you know, I I had not had that image of him in my mind. I remember him as, you know, from Gladiator yeah. as a Hollywood leading man. And I Googled him and I've seen that he's, you know, he had gained some weight and he had kind of aged a bit. I was like, wow, this is brilliant
1: casting. Um, and but it was, just to be clear, Ru- Russell Crowe has put on a couple pounds over the course of his career. Roger Ailes is corpulent, yeah, like so obese and and Russell still
2: needed uh, to wear a fat suit, and they did four to five hours a day of prosthetics to transform his face into Ailes's kind of like basset hound like jowls that hang down. So you know, he went through an incredible tr- physical transformation. But it was kind of
1: inspired casting because it was, you know, not somebody that was ever on my mind. And 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 I was reading much of the the stories about the show. He famously, sort of, comically, doesn't speak to you during the entire time. I
2: was, you know, reliving my relationship with uh, with Rod Rales. You know, I was um, I was on set, you know, as much as I could be, and. We would literally walk by each other, and he wouldn't acknowledge I mean, me. Was
1: there a attempt early on where you didn't realize that's what he was doing, and you were trying to have a conversation with the famous no, movie you know, star I, who was snubbing you? you
2: know, Russell's the kind of person that you know you don't you don't talk to him unless he you know is a very big personality. So I had you know I had you, you picked up on that energy, and yeah, and I had talked to the producers and the director of the pilot, and it was very clear that you know if he was going to have a relationship, he was going to be the one uh-huh. to initiate it.
1: And in, in general, the you know the, there's a sort of trope of the writer journalists, whoever gets their thing made, the, the Hollywood picks it up, and maybe they do the courtesy of letting you into the writer's room or something, and maybe you get to go to the premiere, but it's really not your project at that point, but you, you, your hands are all over it, it looks like.
2: Yeah, I was, uh, and I'm very grateful to Blumhouse for, you know, taking the, the chance and giving me the opportunity to stay involved. It was a story that I had lived and breathed, and I was, you know, determined to try to stay as much in the driver's seat as possible so that it reflected my book and my reporting. And I have to say, like, you know, there was times I had to fight for it, but I think the, the end result is the series does accurately capture, even though it's drama, we should be very clear, it's not a documentary, so we are we are dramatizing events. Um, but it it, it it captures the feel and the mood and the world of Fox, The kind of claustrophobic atmosphere in the offices, the feeling of always being watched. Ailes had cameras everywhere. It
1: really captures that vibe. And I wanted the show to do that. Again, the first two episodes I've seen, you you clearly show that he's a human being Mm -hmm. um, that has weaknesses and doubts. But he's primarily a monster. Um, And if you know anything about him going into it, I can't imagine that you'd watch the show not knowing it. um, Sort of you can't root for him. Do you imagine this is something where someone who watches Fox News or is sympathetic to conservative views or Republicans says, "Oh, this is a, this is something I want to watch"? Or do you think this has got to be sort of a blue state show? No,
2: we want, we had you know many conversations in the writers' room about leading with the humanity. I mean, our prism into Roger is is who he was as a person, and his politics are second. Um, we don't, of course, you know, hide or shade his politics at all, but. You know, his politics in many ways were shaped by who he, who he is. You know, he right, was, but, not,
1: he, but it's not just the politics that make him
2: monstrous. You could... Yeah, yeah, right, it's, it's obviously he's, se- he's, sexual harassment right. and misogyny and the racism. You know, that's all there. And, you know, we decided we wanted to be careful with how, how much we reveal of the monster. Because if he's a cartoon villain from the very first scene... I don't want to watch that show, and I don't think anyone else does. And so when we meet Roger Ailes in our series, you know, he's being fired, right? And that's a a universal kind of a humiliation. Anyone can understand that. And it's an underdog story, right? I mean, he's kicked out of NBC. He goes to work for Murdoch, who, you know, had a a very kind of uh, scrappy and underdeveloped TV uh, division. And he's going up against GE and Microsoft and CNN. And at the time, Disney was going to do an ABC Mm -hmm. network, cable news network. And so that's, you know, the first episode is essentially an underdog story. So yes, he's a total misogynist, and we we see him um, being, you know, completely inappropriate uh, with women. But it's in in the larger context of he's got basically 12 months to save his career because he's 55, everything is riding on the launch of Fox. And so that's why we thought, let's see Roger as the person who's uh, trying to save himself rather than on top of the world, so that we at least once we're on this journey with him and we see him being despicable and we do see that we're it's in the context of well, we understand this is a guy who has been, you know, chasing power his entire life. And once he has the power, we're going to show what he does with it.
1: So eventually he builds up Fox News. It becomes this enormously valuable asset for the Murdoch family. And and they value him and pay him a lot of money. But these constantly sort of fighting with the sons and also with Rupert. And some of the stuff would leak out into the mm-hmm. press. Uh, but it always seemed like it, it never mattered because he had made this thing. He clearly owned the thing even. I mean, I used to. work sort of with the Wall Street Journal and he would be fighting with the journal people in the same building Um, but he was immovable and it seemed like he was never going to (laughs) leave and and then he does leave Um, and then there was a period of time after he'd left where there was this thought that well maybe he could go create his own thing if he talked to the, the News Corp and Fox people are like He's not healthy. Yeah. It was a sort of short-term yeah. answer. But but there was this idea that he was going to go make a new thing. Yeah. Do you think, he had he not died, do you think he would have been successful at making a new thing in a Twitter, Internet, no. Trump era? No, I don't.
2: I reported this recently in Vanity Fair. Shortly before he died, he actually had had a secret meeting set up with Peter Thiel to discuss whether maybe Thiel would finance uh, a right-wing media TV uh, channel. Never happened, obviously, and um, you know I feel the media, and and this is something I definitely explore in the book. You know, the media culture had kind of moved beyond Roger at the end of his career. He didn't get the internet; he dismissed the internet, and I think even just you know his own emotional and uh, physical and mental decline, he wasn't the same person in 2017 that he was, you know, even five years before. And I heard stories from the Trump campaign when I was covering it that he went to um, there's a, a famous story after Ailes was fired. He went to a debate prep session with Steve Bannon and uh, all the tr- Kelly and Conway and, and Trump to prepare for uh, the first debate against Hillary. And they all expected Ailes to be this heavy hitter. And he's in there and he's just kind of like rambling and telling war stories about Reagan. And he wasn't adding any mm-hmm. value. And so very quickly, you know, Ailes was kind of cast aside from Trump world. Um, so I feel like... As much as Ailes wanted to be back in the game, I don't think he had the horsepower that he did. I, I don't and is think that
1: about is that about him not getting Trump or or his health or him not getting the internet or the politics because Fox, right, right post Ailes, is as powerful as it has ever been, more so. Right, it's directly connected yeah. to the White House and it's always been very close to to the, whatever Republican was running the White House. So he clearly got something in an enormous way. Um, what didn't he get about? 2016, 2017. Yeah.
2: I mean, I feel like he uh, would have, you know, basically have had to start, you know, a TV news network from scratch, right? And, you know, as you know, with the carriage fees, the amount of capital it would need for him to get the distribution yeah. um, in 2017 to even matter. If you look at, you know, there's One American News. I mean, the only strategy that seemed to be viable in 2017 was to become... You know, even to the right of Fox. Right? right. And
1: that's sort of what Sinclair is sort of playing yeah, with a little and, bit.
2: And so I just feel like Ailes, you know, he could have done that, but, you know, we see players now trying to get to the right of Fox and they're not really effectual. So I yeah, think yeah, it was just the theory that Breitbart was going to replace uh, Fox and yeah. he didn't at all. And, you know, I think actually, you know, Ailes' theory of Trump was you have to be careful, because he was gonna end up controlling the Fox News audience, which he does. I mean, post-Ailes, there's no power center at Fox. The producers of the shows run their own uh, fiefdoms, and the only thing that gets reliable ratings is pro-Trump coverage, which is why there's no conspiracy where there's daily talking points coming from Trump to the top, you know, filtered down. It's what are we going to do that rates and let's cover Trump. Let's do pro-Trump.
1: Cover. And then they all have individual or no, two of them, right? Tucker Carlson yeah. has a relationship with him. Yeah. Uh, uh, Hannity does, Laura Ingram does. So anyone who's on TV that Trump is watching. Yeah, Google Trump. And, and I've written
2: this as well. I mean, in many ways, Trump is running. He is the executive producer of Fox News. It's those relationships with the talent plus the fact that the audience wants pro trump coverage. So it passes on from Roger Ailes to Trump. Trump yeah, is now I, effectively yeah. Roger. Yeah, Ailes. I mean that's the power vacuum that was filled by Trump.
1: And what do you what do you think becomes of Fox post Trump post Ailes? That's a really fascinating question. I mean, I think the larger
2: question is what be happens to the republic. I mean, it's the same question, I guess, what happens to the Republican Party. You know, I don't I don't know. I mean, you know, the Fox News audience even, you know, now, is still so loyal to Trump. If, let's say, the Republican Party tries to have a restoration of the establishment, I don't think the Fox News audience wants to, you know, hear a Marco Rubio-style Republican. I mean, they want red meat. They've been pushed for, you know, by Ailes and Fox for 20 years now, so far— that it's like, you know, it's like a drug. You get,
1: uh, you know, enough tolerance. You need more and more of it to stay hooked. Do you think, I mean, there was this idea that there was going to be a Trump TV, right? He was going to lose the election, uh, which he'd be happy about. And then he was going to make a new media yeah. venture. And 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 does Fox then become sort of Trump TV in 2020 yeah,
2: I mean, or 2024? Yeah, I mean, if Trump's no longer in office, like, you know, you know, depending on what happens with, you know, the Southern District of New York, you know, the investigations, like, yeah, if Trump's out, you know, basically just a private citizen, maybe he would basically run Fox News as a sort of a right wing critic of the
1: establishment Republican Party. And we, we've talked about Murdoch a few times. Again, do you, do you imagine he thinks about this a lot? Or is he just sort of at the stage of his life where, He's ready to hand this over to somebody else, and it's someone else's problem.
2: Yeah, you know, you talk to Fox News executives now, and both Murdochs, uh, Rupert and Lachlan, do not have the, the same presence that uh, they did, and the, especially Rupert in the past. You know, there is a common refrain you hear from people at Fox that they, you know, speculate the Murdochs might sell Fox News or you know, sell Fox Corp to some other media company. It's not at the scale
1: at a time, and you've covered this all the time, media companies are merging, getting bigger and bigger. And then you get a direct line to the president, and that is the most valuable currency in the world, and it's especially animating for Rupert Murdoch. That is true. So maybe, you know, that has to, the Trump Trump thing has to play
2: out for that uh, to lose its value.
1: This is great. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm a little sad. It took a TV show for us to get in the in the room together. I know we were well, really able do it. Let's do it again sometime. Uh, you got another show coming. You got another movie. What? How's your How's your adventure in Hollywood going to conclude?
2: You know, I I love journalism. I I did get you know hooked on on screenwriting a bit. So I wrote uh, a movie about young Donald Trump and Roy Cohn called The Apprentice that it's wending its way through the the machinery of of Hollywood. So I don't know what's happening.
1: A lot of cocaine in Studio 54. A lot of Studio 54
2: and a lot of uh, of 21 Club. And so it's a world where um, I think people will see the origin story of how Trump became Trump. I think
1: I want to read that screenplay. Thanks for coming, Gabe. Thanks, Peter. Thanks again to you guys for listening. I enjoy the fact that you enjoy this show. And if you told someone else that you enjoy this show, that'd be pretty cool, too. To Arthur produces this show. Jelani Carter chips in. What's what's your official title, Jelani? Jelani says he's an associate producer. I believe him. Jel Ravi is the editor of this show. I would also like to thank our fine sponsors who let you listen to Recode Media for free. Back with a new episode very soon. See you then.